genetic disease affects less than 1% of the population. Yet, despite its relative rarity, there has been an explosion in the adoption of a gluten-free lifestyle. It is becoming more and more common for people to report having problematic reactions to foods containing gluten. Termed non-celiac gluten sensitivity, this is a condition still in search of a defined disease, despite having a large degree of overlap in symptoms with celiac disease. In this podcast, I'll explore the connection between celiac disease, gluten sensitivity, and gluten. Welcome to the Thinking Nutrition Podcast. My name is Tim Crow, and I'm a career researcher, educator, and science communicator with most of this spent in the field of nutrition. How do you make sense of so much conflicting information in the field of nutrition? While I don't profess to have all the answers in an area that is continually changing as research changes, you can count on what is covered in this podcast to be based on the whole field of nutrition science, not just selective areas that support a particular way of thinking. And this podcast will always be free from any commercial product tie-ins, endorsements, or advertisements. Just credible nutrition science presented in plain and simple language, and then translating this into what it means for your health. So on with today's show. Celiac disease is an autoimmune disorder characterized by inflammation of the small intestine. The inflammation is triggered in response to foods that contain gluten, a protein commonly found in wheat, barley, rye, and possibly oats. On exposure to gluten, the finger-like projections which line the small intestine, called villi, become inflamed and flattened. This significantly reduces the surface area of the intestines available for nutrient absorption, which can lead to various malabsorption problems. Celiac disease affects people of all ages and gender. And approximately 1 in 70 Australians have celiac disease, though many people have it and remain undiagnosed. While the cause of celiac disease is not entirely known, there is a strong genetic link, with approximately half of people in Australia born with a genetic predisposition. But because most people with a genetic predisposition don't develop celiac disease, it argues the case for an environmental trigger playing some role. Celiac disease is a serious medical condition, and if it's not adequately managed, it can lead to complications. And the long-term consequences of untreated celiac disease are related to chronic systemic inflammation, poor nutrition, and malabsorption of nutrients. And some of the very common symptoms are gastrointestinal symptoms such as diarrhea or constipation, bloating and flatulence, iron deficiency anemia and other nutritional deficiencies, weight loss or even weight gain, osteoporosis, irritability and depression, failure to thrive and development delay in children, infertility and even dermatitis. But the good news is that early diagnosis and treatment of celiac disease can significantly reduce the risk of most of these complications from occurring. And an accurate diagnosis depends both on results from a blood test and a biopsy of the small intestine. So a strict, lifelong, gluten-free diet is currently the only recognized medical treatment for celiac disease. 
people with celiac disease remain sensitive to gluten throughout their life. However, a strict gluten-free diet does allow the condition to be managed effectively. If the gluten-free diet is strictly adhered to, problems arising from celiac disease should not return. And a gluten-free diet needs to eliminate wheat, barley, rye, and most often oats. But it is not so simple as just cutting out bread and grainy foods. Many processed foods are made with these grains, such as bouillon cubes, hot dogs, gravies, salad dressings, and even soups. A person with celiac disease needs to become an avid food label reader and to ask specific questions at restaurants to determine foods likely to contain gluten. And even a few crumbs of gluten-containing bread on a bread knife can be enough to trigger an acute illness in someone with celiac disease. And to show just how complex following a true gluten-free diet can be, consider the following everyday food items that can contain traces of gluten. Corn flour, for example, because some varieties of corn flour are actually made from wheat starch, not corn. Many varieties of soy sauce contain some traces of gluten, a yeast extract spread such as Vegemite, stock cubes, sauces and gravies, malted drinks such as Milo and Ovaltine, many sausages and hamburgers, small goods, confectionery, ice cream, custard powder, icing sugar mixture, and even baking powder. Now, all of these foods can potentially contain gluten depending on how they've been made. So look, following a gluten-free diet does not mean just cutting out bread. If you do it properly, particularly if you have celiac disease, there are thousands of foods that potentially contain gluten that you need to be aware of. Now, fortunately, foods can be labelled as gluten-free in Australia if they don't contain any detectable gluten, oats, or malted ingredients. And while a product ingredient label may not always list gluten as a component, under mandatory labelling standards, all ingredients and food additives derived from wheat, rye, barley, triticale, or oats must be declared on food labels in Australia. So that's celiac disease. But there is a growing recognition that some people who don't have celiac disease could still have a degree of sensitivity to gluten. These people may be described as having non-celiac gluten sensitivity, or NCGS. I'll just call it gluten sensitivity for the rest of this podcast. Some of the symptoms of gluten sensitivity overlap with celiac disease, and may even diminish when a gluten-free diet is followed. But unlike celiac disease, which has a very clear diagnostic process, there is no medical test for gluten sensitivity. So after excluding celiac disease or wheat allergy as a culprit, a diagnosis of gluten sensitivity relies on self-reported symptoms such as abdominal pain, bloating, nausea, and fatigue experienced following consumption of gluten-containing foods. It is not uncommon for a person to self-diagnose and self-treat themselves as having gluten sensitivity. So is gluten really the culprit in causing symptoms seen in gluten sensitivity? This is a controversial and vexed question, and there is a lot of debate. 
because only a small amount of well-designed research has been conducted so far, with mixed results in reproducing symptoms of gluten sensitivity in controlled dietary trials. And leading researchers are now proposing that self-reported gluten sensitivity may just be a marker for dietary changes that reduce the number of other food components that can cause gastrointestinal problems. And here we have that word FODMAPs. So FODMAPs are different types of carbohydrates, such as lactose, fructose, fructans, and sugar alcohols that can cause irritable bowel syndrome-like symptoms in some people. Wheat contains FODMAPs, but so too do many other foods such as milk, pears, plums, onions, garlic, and legumes. And in one of the few studies done in this area, 35 people who were clinically diagnosed as likely having non-celiac gluten sensitivity and were already following a strict gluten-free diet were given an unlabeled sachet of two different types of flour. One sachet had gluten in it. The other didn't. They were then asked to sprinkle it on soup or pasta for 10 days. After a two-week break, each person commenced using the other sachet of flour. And I'll link to the study in the show notes. So what happened in this blinded clinical trial? Just one-third of the participants managed to correctly identify which flour had gluten in it by the presence of IBS-like symptoms. And half of those that thought the gluten-free flour had gluten in it, said they experienced gastrointestinal symptoms after eating it, but not when they ate the flour that actually contained gluten. What the results from this study are saying is that it was unlikely that it was gluten causing the problem in most people. That doesn't mean the symptoms they experienced were not real, but IBS-like symptoms follow varying patterns of intensity over time. It's called the Hawthorne effect. So the study could have just been detecting that. So people had a natural flare-up of IBS when they were taking one of the sachets. So they attributed that sachet as causing the problems, despite whether it did or did not contain gluten. So this is like the natural variation of particular conditions. If people have a lot of symptoms of a condition, they may start cutting out gluten and they get a resolution of those symptoms, when those symptoms may have resolved naturally by themselves but you falsely attribute whatever dietary change you made at that time. But in this study, it also could be that it was the cereal flour in general that was causing problems in some people unrelated to gluten. So that still leaves FODMAPs as a potential culprit. But although FODMAPs may play a role in non-celiac gluten sensitivity, they explain only certain gastrointestinal symptoms, such as bloating but not the extra digestive symptoms that people with gluten sensitivity may develop, such as neurological disorders, fibromyalgia, psychological disturbances, and dermatitis. So there's a lot more potentially going on. And if you're experiencing gastrointestinal symptoms that you think could be related to gluten, it is important to get this adequately addressed by a doctor for possible investigation for celiac disease. While low FODMAP diets may help with IBS-like symptoms that some blame on gluten, these diets are best followed with the support of a dietitian and for a short period. 
So gluten-free diets are the cornerstone of managing celiac disease, but the popularity of gluten-free diets and products has grown dramatically in recent years, mostly because of the real and perceived gluten intolerance epidemic we have faced within the population. In fact, a recent analysis of the most popular diet search terms among Google users globally from 2004 to 2019 found that gluten-free diets were the third most popular search for diet. Uh, Just out of interest, the first two most popular were both the vegetarian diet and vegan diets. The explosion in gluten-free products to meet the demand and interest in going gluten-free is actually good news for those with true celiac disease. But there could be unintended consequences if the wider population followed such diets. Despite claims that eliminating gluten from the diet helps with a variety of ailments, there is little evidence that a gluten-free diet is beneficial for the general population. Pretty much for everybody, the presence or absence of gluten alone is not related to diet quality. What's important are the overall food choices made within a diet, whether it is gluten-free or not. Gluten-free products often have less protein and more added sugar than similar products made with gluten. I mean, an apple and a gluten-free biscuit are both gluten-free, but their nutrients and their health merits vary drastically. In fact, an Australian study comparing gluten-free foods with matched gluten-containing foods among 3,200 food products found that gluten-free foods were not nutritionally superior to gluten-containing foods. And I'll link to this study in the show notes. And then there is the price premium paid for choosing gluten-free options, with common price differences of at least double compared to similar gluten-containing products not unheard of. So it can be a very expensive diet to follow if you don't have the true medical need to follow such a diet. And finally, it would be rare to find someone following a self-styled gluten-free diet who adheres to it to the level needed for someone with true celiac disease. All too often, going gluten-free just means cutting out the visible sources of whole grain foods. Yet these very whole grain foods are consistently linked to a low risk of heart disease, type 2 diabetes, obesity, and even cancer. So let's wrap this up. There are very clear medical reasons why someone should follow a gluten-free diet. For everybody else, your mileage with a gluten-free diet will vary, especially if you're using it to self-treat IBS-like symptoms. For more on IBS, check out one of my previous podcasts, episode 30, on a range of diet and supplement options that may offer relief, supported by scientific evidence. And none of these options require you to cut out gluten from your diet. So that's it for today's show. You can find the show notes either in the app you're listening to this podcast on if it supports it or else head over to my webpage at thinkingnutrition.com.au and click on the podcast section to find this episode to read the show notes. If you find this podcast of value, then please consider sharing it with your friends and colleagues or maybe even leave a review. This all helps increase the ranking and reach of the podcast, which means a big win for credible, evidence-based nutrition messages while helping to dilute out the crazy and making the world a slightly less confusing place. 
I'm Tim Crow, and you've been listening to Thinking Nutrition. Thinking Nutrition.